The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here. And on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I'm joined by Brenda Smith, the Managing Director of CB Capital Concierge. And Brenda, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I've had you speak at my events in the past, and I'm delighted to reconnect with you. It's been too long, and you're always a fountain of insight. So I'm excited to to see what you have to share with us today. And um, before we get into all of the fun, can you... Just do me a favor and introduce yourself to the audience and tell the folks who are watching or listening a little about your background and the work you do. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Michael. It's 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 always fun to speak out on cannabis and educate people because, you know, people are looking at the cannabis industry as something that's growing very quickly, but they and they want to get into it. But once they get into it, they realize that there's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot to understand. Um, so as far as my background, I, I think this has served me well that I have a very conventional background. I started on Wall Street. I worked with Merrill Lynch. I was a product manager for them, which was a multidisciplined, multifaceted, $34 billion P&L. Um, so that was, that was great training to understand how to scale a business and how to work with multiple disciplines. Um, and I, I then managed a sales district for them and was also a portfolio manager for Bernstein. So I have a very conventional background that I, I come into this industry with. Um, I'm actually a marketing person in the financial world. That's how I define myself. And when I was at a crossroads, as I believe we all get to at some point, I said, okay, you know, um, oh, and I should also mention that I left corporate America. Let me back up for a second. I, I left corporate America and started my own company. And I did a lot of marketing and financial consulting for both multinational corporations, um, government entities like the U.S. Air Force, and also um, Carnegie Mellon was one of my, my clients. And at that time, there was a lot of IP coming out of Carnegie Mellon. And my role was to help them commercialize it, build the business around it. And when I finally got to later on, I sold that business. It was actually a global business I ran for 16 years. And once I sold it, I was saying, well, what do I do now? You know, where, where do I go? And when I, when I started to poke around in the cannabis business, I had been an investor, a private investor for probably five, six years before I entered it. And when I started looking at it, I said, you know, there's something here. This is, looks like it's going to be a real industry. And did a lot of soul searching, said, gee, I've got you know, this fundamental, foundational corporate background. And yet I also have this entrepreneurial side of working with startups and working with global organizations. And it, it just seemed to click, it just seemed to fit. And I got really interested and went a little deep, started talking to people and really thought leaders in the industry who, you know, I, I, you stand on shoulders of giants when you come into this, this industry because there's so much to learn and there's so many places to, to learn it um, and so many facets to it is it's a brand new industry. Um, it, it's almost like a shadow of all the industries that are out there. And if I can just say one more thing before I stop blathering on here, you know, I, I think um, it, it's very much like the internet was. You know, before the internet, we had an industry called IT or technology. And then it became part of every industry. Technology is embedded in whether you're oil and gas or whether you're manufacturing or whether you're, um, you know, hospitality, it's, it's, it's embedded in there. And, and that's where I see cannabis going, becoming part of every industry. You know, we have, we have um, cars, the, the chassis being made of, of hemp residuals. You know, you have um, imp medical informatics as it relates to cannabis. Um, you have medicines, you have, um, you know, a lot of cannibalization of things like alcohol coming from cannabis, and I could go on and on, but it, it, will, it will infiltrate eventually into every industry and influence it. 
in, in different ways. So, yeah. Okay, we done now? Did I say, <laughs> did, I, did I say everything? So. Thank you for that intro, Brenda. And yeah, quite an impressive corporate background and business background before getting into cannabis. And I tend to agree with you. I even have in my book, the Cannabis Business Book, which you can now get the audio book on Amazon for the listeners. If you like the sound of my voice, you can go check that out. One of the things that I, that I say, which I love when people who are more experienced and smarter than I am affirm what I say, so thank you, was that this is like the birth of the internet as far as the opportunity for entrepreneurs, you know, yeah. the, the legalization of cannabis, and precisely for the reasons that you said that it's going to impact everything. And especially when you look at hemp and all the potential use cases and, and all the inefficiencies that hemp could replace and, and all the things it can do more sustainably, um, this is going to impact everything. And there's opportunity across the board, which is why it's so exciting. And, or one of the reasons I want to ask you, was there a moment when it all really clicked for you when you decided, you know, I'm going all in on this cannabis thing? Yeah. And, and before I get into that, Mike, I just want to say something about you, because I, I think it's, it's so interesting. You know, we talk about the industry, we talk about the growing, we talk about all the infrastructure. But, you know, it, it, what's really fascinating about this industry is the people. And I, I will say about you, Mike, you know, you're the entrepreneur's entrepreneur or the entrepreneur's coach. Um, and, and I think, you know, sometimes we get caught up into how this industry is operating and, and we really need to look at the people that have come into it. And, and you have this amazing voice for mining people and getting the best out of them. Because I, I always believe it's, it's never businesses that are successful. It's people that are successful. And, and so I've seen you facilitate, you know, you're, you're obviously doing that with me right now. And I, I think getting the best out of people, and that's not to say there aren't bad actors, but importantly, you know, when an investor is looking at an at a opportunity, one of the first things they look at is the management team. You know, do they play well together? Are they aligned around a goal? Are they coachable? You know, how are decisions made? How does governance happen? The people in this industry. So that, that's kind of what attracted me to this, especially, you know, coming from the world I came from. And even though I was in the corporate world, in a lot of ways, I was admired in big institutions, you know, whether it was Carnegie Mellon or FedEx or Booz Allen or Deloitte or the U.S. Air Force, you know, I worked with these big companies. And, and so what was attractive is the spirit of this industry. And, and there were a bunch of pioneers, and I say pioneers, and I, I choose that word very carefully because it's, they, they went beyond entrepreneurs. These were people that were really excited about the industry and they almost came into it or they definitely came into it with one hand tied behind their back because first of all, it's federally illegal, right? So they had to work within state legality laws. Secondly, the way that they account and, and look at profitability in their business was constrained by something called 280E, which we all know. Capital was constrained. You know, you couldn't raise capital in the in the capital markets here because the the the, the stock markets were, or the I, I guess it was the you know the, certainly the Nasdaq and and New York Stock Exchange were closed to plant touching businesses. It was a boom for uh, Canadian stock exchange, also known as the cannabis stock exchange. Um, but there were a lot of constraints, and and if people investors need to understand when they're looking at an investment that. People had to plow through all of these obstacles and they're still dealing with them today. Also cash businesses. We don't have, you know, national banking. We don't have um, a, a lot of opportunities that a regular business had. So it, it, it was that spirit that, that attracted me to this and the energy of let's go build an industry. You know, let's be, these were people that could see beyond the moment. They could see years down the road they could say this is going somewhere. And I think we all have a better understanding of that today. But you know, five, six, nine, ten years ago, you know, when California first came online, and that's a whole story in itself. But you know, did, did anybody have the vision of where this might go or the vision of where it's going to go from here? So um, that's that was what was exciting to me. 
And, and I think, you know, Mike, I know you've been there too, but, you know, going out to the MJ BizCom conference, you know, you see it go from 6,000 to 9,000 to 30,000 people last, well, two years ago. Um, you know, the growth of the industry, the growth of the excitement, um, it, it's, it's a little contagious, I have to say. But, but I think we're at a pivotal point where the growth has to be measured by a conventional discipline. You know, we, we had years of, of evolution with, if it had the word cannabis in it, people wanted to get in it. And today, I think the pressure is on companies to start to look for fundamental value. You know, what's the competitive market? What's your total addressable market? How are you going to create value and be sustainable over the long run? Because those are the winners of capital and capital is the fuel. It's the rocket fuel for this industry, especially without the institutions here. So I may have elaborated more than you had asked, but um, that's that's what I see. For the folks who may not yet be in the industry or are considering it, you know, there's I've I've encountered over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, Brenda. Folks that come from a traditional finance or business background, not unlike yourself, but many of those folks I've seen come in with an arrogance or an or an entitlement where they disregard the pioneers and they haven't really appreciated or honored all of the the activism and all of the personal risk-taking that required to even get us to this point. And I hear you really appreciating and honoring that. And I, I wanna I, I just want to highlight that for the folks who might be on the sidelines still. I think that's a critical piece of the puzzle. If you don't have that spirit or that awareness, you're not going to get very far in this industry because you know folks are not going to embrace you. You're not going to get access to you know the lifeblood of this industry, which are the people that have you know the connection to the plant, the growers, the processors, all of those folks. You mm-hmm. know they. Most of them, in my experiences, are doing this not because of a pure profit motive, right? There's a bigger purpose or bigger mission for why they do what they do. And that understanding is critical to to do business in this space, I believe. No, I agree with you. And I, I, I think that there has to be a blending of those two things. Um, you know, you've got growers and and in some ways, you know, that you could consider them agrarians or farmers or cultivators, Um, but they also need to be framed in a a conventional structure. You know, when you talk about scaling a business, and, and it's interesting, I'm working with one of my clients now and they've got a great product and they love what they do, but they're so in the business that they can't work on the business. And I, I love to make that distinction because, you know, when you're doing what you do every day to run a business, um, that's, you know, grab and go and, and not enough time and, and all those, those critical choice points. But at some point, you have to look at it as an entity. You have to look at it the way investors look at it. Because right now, it's only private capital. So you've got to be able to structure it and use the language of business. Because at some point, it goes beyond being something you love to do to something that has to have commercial value. And in order to do that and attract the capital you need, you need to speak in investor language. You need to talk in real terms. Because, you know, at the beginning, everybody was, well, we're going to have an exit. We're going to have an exit in a year. We're going to have an exit exit in three. Well, great. But, you know, if you can't prove the commercial value and the sustainability and the competitive advantage, um, then you may not have that exit. You know, I had some really interesting questions with an investor group yesterday. And I, Mike, if I can just elaborate a little bit. Um, they asked me, they were comparing this to the venture capital industry. And I'd say three years ago, maybe four years ago, this was a venture capital industry. And you could take a pot shot. And if you had a pool of 17 investments, maybe three were going to be home runs. And the investor said, well, do you see any unicorns emerging from this, you know, billion dollar unicorn businesses? And I said, I think so, but maybe not getting there the way that you think. Um, and here's what, what I said to him, you know, being a unicorn means that you're going to have volume and you're going to have scale. 
And in today's market, you can get to volume and scale potentially with an ancillary service. You know, whether it's, um, you know, something like GrowGen, which, which is they were calling the Home Depot of, of cannabis, where you can work in 50 states, doesn't touch the plant, you're providing buckets and shovels and lights and nutrients, and you can scale that operation across the country and maybe across the world. But I said to them, even though we're, we're not necessarily in the venture space, I think we're in the, in the Series A space right now, not to say there aren't new companies coming out, but A, B, and, and, and beyond that, you know, a lot of these operators, and if you want to call them, you know, brands, or you want to call them vertically integrated dispensaries, they're intrastate, not interstate, but intrastate operators. And you wouldn't use the same metrics to evaluate them. Instead, you know, and I'm going to use Pennsylvania as an example, because I'm holed up in Pennsylvania, and I'm actually working with, you know, I'm actually bringing to market a deal in Pennsylvania. And, and you know, why, why wouldn't you measure that as the same, by the same standard? And, and, and I said to them, the reason is because it's a growth opportunity. You're not looking at the leverage that you get from scale, but a state like Pennsylvania, where you have a vertically integrated operation, you're actually looking at a total addressable market that's gonna grow. And, and I'm just using this as an example. So Pennsylvania has had a legal medical program for just shy of two years. Pennsylvania has, and I, I took, wrote some statistics down here. Pennsylvania has about 13 million people here in, in, in the state. They have 20,000 liquor stores in the state. And, and, and this isn't a perfect you know, example, but I think it's a good one. They have 20,000 liquor stores here. That means for every, hundred, every 650 people in the state, they have one liquor store. That makes sense. Or one liquor store for every 650 people. If you do the same thing with cannabis dispensaries, we have 120 cannabis dispensaries in the state. That means for every 108,000 people, 108,000, you have one dispensary per 100,000 people. Now, if this is a market that starts to grow, and Pennsylvania right now is talking about adding adult use to their program, which opens up the market, and what a lot of people don't understand is the fastest growing segment of this market is women age 50 and above. And you know that if women start using cannabis for anxiety or pain or sleep or very conventional reasons, they start to promote it to their family. It's like, you know, teach somebody to fish and they can provide fish. So if you look at the, the potential market growth, and this is just one state, you, you've got so much growth potential in the market, that's the measure of success. And you know, in this last election, which nobody really wants to talk about, but the good thing that came out of it is we had new states coming online that just started their medical programs. And we know that medical programs are the gateway to adult use programs. So you've got medical pro, you know, new states coming online, you've got existing states with medical programs adding adult use, so all you have is expansion and growth as things are starting. And I apologize, I have my computer pop-ups coming here. So apologize if that bothered anybody. Um, so so the, 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 the way that an investor has to look at this is not in traditional measures, but, but in growth opportunities. You know, it was like Apple when they, when they first started without all the obstacles. That, and that's the distinction I think investors and companies need to understand too, who their competition is and also who they will be when we get to the point where we either legalize or deschedule the plant. Yeah, so I'm hearing a lot of different nuggets in there. Uh, <laughs> one of which is the importance of being able to speak the language of investors if you wanna attract capital. And it's something I talk about in the book and it's something that I think you'll agree is, it's almost a no brainer. It's like, how could you expect to attract serious capital without being able to do business as usual for investors? That There's standard documents, there's standard expectations. And it's important for any entrepreneur that's trying to fundraise to be aware of all that stuff and to know that if you don't know those things, you're almost automatically disqualified. And so if you don't know those things, it's important to go and 
get an advisor or consultant or coach or, or someone on your team that can help you speak that language and become fluent in it. And really, you ought to become fluent in it anyway, if you intend to raise capital. The other thing I heard you say that I wanted to echo was this industry is not like other industries. And there's are you several unique considerations. But your point about the intrastate operations for the majority of plant touching businesses are intrastate. Of course, even the MSOs, they're really like just conglomerates of intrastate businesses. And, mm -hmm. and to your point, making sure that that perspective is reflected in your company's business plan or, an, or in an investor's approach to valuation. It's something that if you're in the space makes a lot of sense and is, oh yeah, duh. But if you're not in cannabis, it's easy. And, I, and I've, I've heard so many people say, well, I've succeeded in this industry or, oh, well, I've invested in this industry or I know these kind of businesses or blah, blah, blah. But this industry is unique. And yeah. if you don't see it that way, I, I really think you're, you're missing a big piece of the picture. I want to ask you, Brenda, because you mentioned a few, a few questions ago that no one could have imagined when California came online that we would end up being where we are now. And even if you, I feel like even a few years ago, even if we would have spoken two, three years ago about federal legalization, there would have been a bunch of people that would have said, oh, it may never happen. Whereas now the conversations, at least that I'm having, it's almost a foregone conclusion. And it's just a question of when it will happen, which even a few years ago was people weren't sure. So I'm curious what your take is on the future of this industry. And maybe, maybe in the more short term, in the next year or so or two, and then maybe even thinking a decade out from now, were there some, some themes or some opportunities or some trends or, or even some risks or concerns that are top of mind for you? I, I think, um, you know, a couple of things. The industry was built, the legal cannabis industry was built atop the illegal industry. Nobody ever said goodbye to that. And particularly in California, I mean, it, it's up in Canada, it's everywhere. And so I just wanna make a mention of that and then I'll go further down the road. I, I think that what we're seeing is, um, we, we're, we're projecting what a $30 billion industry by 2024. I think that's the right number, growing at about 27% Kager, right? I think that's where we are. But what people fail to, to realize is that we have a large illegal market that is still functioning and, and, and growing and, well and, and, and growing, but I do think it's being absorbed. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think that um, that illegal market um, where you is mostly a flower market. It's mostly, you know, people buying flour from their supplier. Um, what happened this year or last year under COVID is that a lot of those supply chains got disrupted. You know, we had, it was interesting to see what happened to can the legal cannabis business where they declared it an essential business and the industry in their entrepreneurial pioneer kind of way, they pivoted very quickly to say curbside delivery. Sure. We can arrange that. And they made it happen. But the supply chain in the illegal market was not as resilient. They didn't respond as quickly and they couldn't. So a lot of these illegal patrons or the people who patronize the illegal market said, I can't get what I usually get from the place I usually get it. Let me mosey on over to a dispensary. And they walk in and they start to see different form factors. They start to see something that is beyond flour, the gummies, the shatter, the oils, you know, different things. And they're like, wow, they pay a little more because they pay tax on that. But it opened up some eyes from that illegal market. And so I think that over time, you're gonna see a migration from the illegal market where those illegal providers don't have access to platforms, technology platforms, they don't get to promote. You know, a lot of their customers are older generations from like 60s and 70s type, you know, those people. Um, so I do think we're gonna see a lot of absorption of that ready 
illegal market, which is twice the size. So if we're saying we're going to have a $30 billion market, do we have a 40, 50, $60 billion market, a shadow market underneath it that could potentially lift all boats? That's another potential for growth. So I see that happening. I also see a lot of consolidation. You know, these companies that didn't fit the bill, that, that don't really measure up to the kind of standards we're talking about here, they will either need to be acquired or sold or absorbed or merged, usually because the management team has have hit that level of the bends where they came up too quickly and they really couldn't scale it to where it needed to be. So I think over the next couple of years, we're gonna see a lot of consolidation. Um, and at the same time, we'll, we'll see a lot of advances in medicine and research and over-the-counter medicines. Um, and when it, when it comes to full out legalization, I think, you know, is it legalization? Maybe it's descheduling, like what they did to hemp. You know, they take it from a schedule one and they put it on a schedule three or four or five. Um, when that happens, you know, it's game on. I mean, big in a big, big way, because Right now, the institutions, whether they're consumer product companies, whether they're um, pharma companies, over-the-counter drug companies, they're largely on the sidelines. They're watching and they're talking and they're exploring. But until we have federal legalization, you know, Coca-Cola or you know, Gatorade, you know, we'll call it Gatorade, you know, is not gonna, they're not gonna say, oh gee, it's legal now. Let me go out and start a field and grow some cannabis and process it. They're not going to start de novo. They're going to come in and they're going to acquire companies. So we can anticipate somewhere between today and that wall of capital that's going to come in is the opportunity for private investors. And, and you know, some of the people coming in today are, are you know, late adopters and, and they're probably smarter. And maybe they, you know, learn from the earlier stage where people were just throwing silly money at, at cannabis. Um, but I would say, you know, be discerning, ask the questions, find good stewards of capital, because that's essentially what you're doing is you're putting your financial energy behind a company and they may or may not be the successful company going forward. So you, you, you want to check all those boxes and you do want to ask all those questions. Oh, look, I think, I think there'll be a lot of innovation in cannabis. Cannabis is the innovation today. And, and I think we'll see lots of different delivery mechanisms We'll see it come into mainstream medical. It's kind of coming into hospitals now. Um, but the opportunities are, are really now, be, be, while we're still a private funded market, a privately funded market. Um, you know, and that's not to say that there aren't opportunities on the public markets, but some of these cannabis companies went from friends and family to public immediately. And they missed about six steps in between. So they're, they're paying that price and, and you want to be with careful evolution, you know, with, with these companies as well. And by the way, I'll also add this, even if they declared tomorrow that we were going to have a legal program, it's still going to take a year and a half or so to get all the regulations in place. It, it takes on average that long in a state to get their legal programs up. And we're talking about 50 states, you know, we're talking about coordinating this. I think if legalization or deschedulization happens, we're gonna see something that looks a little like a liquor model where you're still gonna have controlled distribution, but you're gonna have nationwide distribution. You know, you'll have, you'll have the states controlling something. They're not gonna give up that tax revenue so fast. And then you're gonna see the federal government put a tax on top of that. So yippee, yay, that's where it's going. <laughs> Do you have a view on the timeline of when we might see one of these major shifts. You mean on a on a national level? You mean like yep. federal federal? Um, I do have a point of view. I, I think we're we're almost there. I mean, if you look at any social change that's happened in this country, whether it was the women's right to vote or the civil rights movement or you know interracial marriage, whatever it was. Um, it usually happened when you had about two thirds of the states, or I should say two thirds of the population supporting those changes. And we're there. I mean, and every day we're getting more and more states, you know, online, we're, we're seeing successful programs in states and, and, and tremendous tax revenue. I mean, Pennsylvania had half a billion dollars of tax revenue over the last 18 months. So I, I think we're, we're close. Um, 
again, somebody's got to pick up the mantle and run with it and say, this is important and, and we need to do this. But again, don't expect it to happen in a day. It'll, it'll be a couple years out. I don't think it's the first thing on the you know, agenda for our government, but there are some people that are trying to move it forward. So I'd say a couple of years, couple, three years, I, you know, I'm probably going to shoot myself for, for, for putting a number out there, but I think it's imminent. I think we're, we're, we're marching down that road right now. And I'm going to ask you one of my least favorite questions that I get asked all the time. And I hope maybe you have a better answer than I do. And I can steal your answer. <laughs> when people ask me about the public markets and what weed stocks to invest in. First of all, I have to say I'm, I'm a licensed, you know, registered person. So I, I really can't talk about a specific company, um, but I've watched that that market. And let, let me just say the risks in there. It's the same criteria to evaluate them that we're talking about here. Um, there are a number of public companies up in Canada and, and people should know that the, that the hurdle to get onto the Canadian stock exchange as a as cannabis company was is much lower than it is down here. New York Stock Exchange, you know, NASDAQ, the, the financials. Um, and as I said before, a lot of companies went from friends and families to public. So you've got to be very discerning about what you're doing. A lot of Canadian companies, it's, it's fully federally, I'm sorry, it's fully federally legal in Canada. So you have, you know, big, large companies up there that are legal, federally legal, that can be traded on our exchange. And you know who they are. I can't say who they are. One of them is backed by Constellation Brands. One of them's in Vancouver. Um, you know, the Canadian companies had a strategy. You know, it's cold up there. And the population of Canada is the same as the population of California. They just happen to have a larger landmass. So think about it. They're growing indoors. It's very expensive. They're, um, they don't have a big population. They can't come into the lower 48, uh, 48. Their whole industry was based on exports to markets that didn't have cannabis. Now those markets do have cannabis. So where are they going with that? That's a big question. So that's one thing I would consider up there. Down here, you know, you, you have a lot of, or you have some publicly traded companies that started small. Um, some of the MSOs that are extremely well run, but you're not, you need to be discerning. You need to know what they are. Right now, it looks like, you know, all boats are rising in the tide because the tide is rising for cannabis. Cannabis won the election, if, you know, if we know nothing else, but that they won. But, but do the same analysis, fundamentals, fundamentals. And are they positioning themselves for what's next, which is you know, multi-state operation, scalability, and the entry of, of uh, institutional players? And you, you've, got to, you've got to really work hard to evaluate that management team because they are steering the capital ship. So I'd say that would, that would be the first box to check. And um, you, know, you can love the product. And I always say to my clients that I represent, you know, it's not a build it and they will come guys. Why are you gonna be better? And how can you convey that, that you've got an advantage, a competitive advantage, something you can, that's sustainable over time. Nobody has a crystal ball, but we can see the momentum we've got. We can see the direction this is going. And, and, and I am happy to talk to anybody if they wanna talk. I'm an educator myself. I, I want my investors and I want my clients, you know, my, my cannabis clients to be smart in order to make good decisions. So I'm, I'm always happy to take a call, you know, field a question. Um, I, I do a lot of investor briefings, you know, and I'm to educate them. So happy to do, to, to, to answer those questions as well. What are you most excited about in the cannabis world today? I a couple things. One is, is medical advances. You know, I, I think as we bring more research universities online, you know, Israel's the, the center piece of, of all research and clinical studies that are happening over there. And they, they have been a really led the way for us. I, I'd like to see more of it happen here. I get excited about that. I mean, you've got a very, 85% of our medicines come from plants. And we've got a very complicated plant here that has, you know, more than 150 different cannabinoids in it and different permutations for different diseases. And we're just scratching the surface right now. 
So to really be able to find out what's the right combination of medicines for the kinds of things we're looking at. You know, we, we've, we've had this plant blacklisted for a long time. Now, I think there's, there's hidden healing inside a plant um, that we have yet to mine. So that excites me. Um, on the commercial side of things, you see a lot of talent leaving conventional industry coming into cannabis. And, and when we legitimize this, this business, when it becomes mainstream, when it goes conventional, we, we have this opportunity to um, integrate it in and, and make it a really mainstream business. I mean, that's, that's the excitement, I think. Um, and there are a lot of young people. I get a lot of calls from people saying, will you talk to me about cannabis? And my uncle's going to fund me to start a cannabis company. And my first thing I say to them is go work for somebody first, you know, don't jump right in. Like a lot of people have tried to do and find out you're in over your head, you know, and, and, and put a good team together. So that's what I'm most excited about is, um, the way this industry will advance once it becomes more acceptable. And by the way, I think what people are seeing today, a lot of the old stigmas have fallen away, gateway drugs, stoner, all these kinds of things. It, it's much more mainstream, you know, much more mainstream than it was and much more acceptable. And I think the number is 70% of the pop Gallup, Gallup did a study and they said that 70% of the population approves legalization. Now, whether they use it or not is something else. And I know there's some companies out there that have great statistics, but yeah, so, so seeing that happen is, is going to be very exciting. Absolutely. And I, I'm pleased because I often give the same advice that you just gave, which is go work for someone, go get into the industry, get some experience first before going and spending your money or other people's money on a highly risky venture when you don't have that experience. Brenda, I want to ask you about coaching and then maybe we can do a quick coaching piece because I know you serve as a coach and have worked as a coach for entrepreneurs and, and you advise investors. And, and as you said, you're an educator. So I, I would love for you to touch on the value of coaching and just kind of speak to that for, for maybe the cannabis entrepreneurs or operators out there that are not familiar with the practice or the service of coaching. So um, it's interesting. My company that I sold was actually a coaching company. I had 50 coaches working with me and I worked with a lot of high level people. Um, and I apologize. I have two dogs that are running around here doing really strange things. So I had to go on mute for a second. Um, you know what I said when, when I said people are successful, not businesses. And in order to build a business, that's something outside yourself. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, David Bohm, who's a physicist, said, you know, there's an explicit order. That's what happens out here. It's the business you build. It's the infrastructure you build. But everything that you can build outside of yourselves comes from something inside, something you've seen, something you believe, something that is in your, your line of vision that you can, you can follow. And I don't mean to sound abstract here, but the power of coaching is getting people to to, to be able to, I always say a coach can kind of reach in and touch those places that people can't access themselves. You know, we, we have a way of doing what we've always done, doing what we feel comfortable with, not going to places we don't feel comfortable or, or, or even the blind spots that stop us. So I think the power of coaching is to use language as a tool and, and maybe even experiences as a tool to, to get people to open up and it, it's not without risk. I mean, you, you people, you, you tap into the vulnerabilities of people that they're always hiding. And I always say that your best answers are in, the, in those dark places that you won't go to. So a good coach, and Michael, I know you are a good coach, will ask those kinds of questions and get the entrepreneur to start thinking differently maybe learning a new language, maybe trying something new, um, maybe venturing into a lane they haven't been in before. So, so at the end of, of good coaching, they have expanded possibilities for action. And, and that's, um, you know, so many people want to tell you what to do. You know, when you, when you work with people, you, you want to be efficient. So telling people what to do is efficient, but asking them, how they might be doing this or 
why do you think this might be important? Although you never use a question, but you might, you know, what's important about this? By, by getting people to think for themselves, it may not be the most efficient, you know, way to go about managing, but it's definitely the most effective because you will have a growing team as well. So that's sort of a Reader's Digest version on my 16 years of coaching. Um, but I believe it because in order to make change happen, you have to rewire your brain. And, and I'll use this, this example, Mike. Very often people don't change until they get into a crisis. You know, they, they sit with a, something, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this. Once a crisis comes, that is the only time they make a change because they have the energy and the motivation. You know, whether it's a divorce, a failed business, um, too much weight you're carrying, health risks, whatever it is, the crisis comes about. And so you can wait until that happens and then you pay a big price. But if you have a coach, they will help you see the potholes before you step in them. And for those people that are listening, if you think this is best just a business issue, it's not. I can tell you from coaching people for years that the same issues that are showing up in business are the same issues that are showing up in your personal life. And once you understand that and change that, everything changes. And he didn't pay me to say this. <laughs> That's true. Although I, I, I would be willing to because I loved it so much. And, <laughs> and in particular, I, I just want to share with you because maybe you'll appreciate is when people ask me what I do in cannabis, which is probably my second least favorite question to answer. I like to have to have some fun with it. I joke that I, I'm a cultivator or that I'm a master grower that notorious term. And, and of course, everyone gets all excited. Oh, do you have some samples? Can, what can you, and I say, no, 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 I, I grow human potential. I, I grow the people, not the, not the plant, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But then more seriously, what, what I actually think in my own mind and that I don't actually share and how I think of myself is as a language artist. Mm -hmm. And I think coaching is very much about what, what I call language arts, which mm -hmm. is, you know, very vague, but is, is in line with what you said. So I really appreciated that. And that landed on me and uh -huh. ma made me feel affirmed in, in my, my perspective of it. So oh, thank glad. you for I'm that. Glad I could yeah. do that. Of course, of course. So on that note, Brenda, I, I'm wondering if there's any business buzzkill or roadblocks or even personal challenges or roadblocks or obstacles that maybe I could support you with through some coaching here today. And if not, that's okay too. Well, you know, you know, I think my biggest challenge, I mean, I don't think it's a personal thing so much, but look, my level of frustration, I work, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, I raise capital for them and I help them, you know, operationalize their business because I am an operator by, by training and a marketing person by design. And I think the hardest part, you know, there's something called the entrepreneur's dilemma where what got you here won't get you there. It's, and, and I have one client in particular that I'm thinking about, they've got a great product. They, you know, their, their way of making decisions is to interrupt each other and push each other around. That's kind of how they, they, they make their decisions. And, you know, we've, we've lost an opportunity. We've been in front of some really big investors and we lost some opportunity because they really weren't crisp. They weren't concise. They didn't put a stake in the ground and they really need this capital to go to the next level. They've got a great product. They've got a great, you know, operation, but they need to get to scale. So this, this whole idea of the, op, the entrepreneur's dilemma, which is we got this far, how are we going to get to the next level? And it's really painful because I think all young companies go through it. And in, 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 yep, a lot of you know, sweat equity and grist has gotten them to the point of, of having a business, but how are they going to get it bigger? And, and this might be where coaching comes in. Um, I find that you know, bridging this gap between entrepreneurs that took it this far, that want to get to the next level, but don't have the language, uh, maybe don't have the vision, don't have the discipline 
I mean, I, I've told my clients, this particular client, I said, you know, you're going to think about this like the invasion of Normandy. You're going to have a war room to say, okay, we're going to need this many tanks and this many troops, and we're going to go by air, we're going to go by sea. You know, we have to worry about the weather, which was the downfall of Normandy when, when they did that. And, and you've got to have that discipline, and you've got to convey the, your conviction to your investors. So getting them from young entrepreneur to intermediate entrepreneur to fully scaled entrepreneur, it's, you know, I sometimes feel, and I'm sure you do too, like my intestines are in this game, you know, trying to get them to that level. So I, I don't know if that's my issue to, to you know, to deal with. Um, I, I consider myself a change agent as well. And, uh, but sometimes, you know, it's hard to get other people to get to see, see that place. That, that's a big battle. Yeah, I hear that. So it sounds like the challenge is, especially with this particular client, is getting them to, to appreciate and understand that they have to do something differently. The situation you're describing makes me think that wh whoever the leader is or the leadership team over there, it sounds like maybe there's a reluctance for them to admit or accept or, mm -hmm. or own the fact that they're the problem in a way. And how do, how do, you, how do you reflect that to someone without offending them? How do you get them to, to see that in a way where they're going to be inspired and energized to take action and to do things differently. It's certainly a delicate situation. But yeah. so so I'm wondering if in your particular or earn that client experience, would you say that's the big hang up there? You know, it's it's an interesting interesting question you're asking because I think when you're coaching somebody as you do they either have it, the desire inside or they don't. And if they have enough pain, like they don't get the capital they need and they have enough pain um, to change, they might pony up and, and make it happen. I think in this case, you know, I've got three, three people on the team that I'm working with. You know, one of them is right 100% on board. You know, we're, we're doing mock meetings, 100% on board. The other one, Second one is eager to learn because he's a scientist, he comes from a different place. And then the other one um, is kind of like, I think he probably sees this as his last gig and he, you know, he's waiting for the exit and kind of coasting a little bit. So if, if you don't have the fire in the belly, I'm not sure you can, I mean, if they had the capital they needed, if they get the capital they need, my guess is they'll bring in a CEO to run this company. So again, this goes back to what happens on the outside is based on what's going on on the inside. And you could talk to somebody all day long and coach them all day long, but if they don't want it, if they don't want to square up their corners and you know, buck up and go for this, because it's, it's energy you have to put in, no amount of effort is ever gonna make that happen. So, uh, or talent, you know, my talent or your talent, you know, if they don't want to do it, you know, this, if, if, if they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. End of story. Absolutely. So, and that's where, that's where the magic comes in, right? Is try, how do you get someone to want to do what's best for them or what may be best for their business, even when it's, uncomfortable or painful or etc and that's 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 the whole coaching battle in a way but i completely agree with you if they don't want it then you can coach your ass off but it right. ultimately they have to be the one to make that decision and so what i'm what i'm curious about cuz right there's if they don't have the big enough pain then the flip side is can you help them see a big enough vision for success that's going to inspire them to say that, hey, I want that. I want that badly enough that 
I'm going to do whatever it takes. Do you, well, do you think it's that I, kind of person? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't want to say too much, but I sure. always think that the opportunity is in the gap, right? It's, it's from the gap is they have very ambitious goals. I mean, big numbers they want to hit. And they even have some targets they want to buy the company down the road. But getting from here to there, you know, that space, that gap that we need to work in, they know where we're going. And I do think that a lot of successful people are motivated by avoiding failing rather than focusing on success. So I'm, I'm working through this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the handles, where the levers, you know, to get there. And, and it is interesting because we're doing this as a team. We're, we're working as a coaching on the team. And, and this coaching piece is, you know, they've got their peers next to them. So there's a little bit of peer pressure to pony up as well. And that's working to their advantage or to our advantage to get there. I think we will get there because we, we've done some, some mock group coaching. Um, and then Monday we have a, a meeting with a, with a big investor where we get to you know, go live. And, and see if, if what they've learned is going to be, you know, applied. So that's, that's kind of, you know, real time. And if that doesn't happen, then, I, you know, I've got to make, make a decision. They've got to make a decision. That's kind of where it goes. It's, I, I agree with you about the most people are driven by the pain or avoiding the pain as opposed to reaping the reward. And what comes up for me and maybe this is something that you've already considered or tried, and I'm sure you're aware of given all your coaching experience, but never underestimate. Uh, this is what I've learned recently in my own personal experience when I was challenged by a friend of mine to, to step my game up. Never underestimate the power of some good old-fashioned guilt or, or some shame. And, and, and what I mean by that, and obviously I I'm not saying to shame anyone or to any of that, but, but what, what I found effective recently in my own journey of, of changing some habits was when a friend of mine really called me out and painted the picture of the future if I didn't make the change and if things didn't go the right way. And, yeah. and kind of planted it in my head of like, Mike, you're not doing your best. And just really call, called me out plain and simple of like, you're underachieving. And, and, and it was really the statement that, that really killed me. And, yeah. you know, may, I don't know if this will resonate for, for your client, but he, he, this person, my friend said to me, I care about you. I, I want you to succeed. And it, it, it just makes me sad to see you not living up to your potential. And that was just like the, oh, you know, I just couldn't stomach that. I was just like, what, what, what is he talking about? It only takes that one kind of phrase or whatever to really to find that pain point and twist into it, right? Where, where then it, it's like that seed in, in the, the client or whoever's receiving the coaching that they can't get it out of their head. And then later they're like, well, what, what if they were right? So it's just all about, I think, just finding that one trigger or what is that, what's that thing that's gonna keep this person up at night that's gonna challenge them or make them wanna prove you wrong or prove, prove themselves. I believe in this kind of situation, you have to find some kind of roundabout way right to to get under their skin and this guy i actually found and again this is for my from my personal experience as a recipient of of feedback and coaching this friend of mine used humor really effectively with me and and made fun of me and was making jokes about this terrible future if i don't change my ways and and at first it was really funny and I like laughed along. And then the more and more he did it, I just got pissed. And then eventually I was like, what's going on here? And I had to kind of process myself and, and, and got to a point of, oh shit, you know what? He's right. And I have to change this thing. And, 
And then it became like this. So I don't know if that's helpful at all. I just wanted to share that experience and maybe it will spark something in you or, or, or give you an idea or new possibility or a different approach or something that, that you could take to, to your client. What do, what do you think hearing all that? I think, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I haven't gone so deeply into where is this guy's buttons, you know, but I haven't really, I, I always say this is you, there's multiple levels that you can coach at. And if you're going to mine a place, like what's his go button? And, but if somebody's go button is, let me just hang back and chill, <laughs> you know, that's their, that's their MO. It's kind of hard. Um, but you, you made me think about something, you know, about coaching again, that I'll just give a plug for is that, you know, we go through life and we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. You know, once, once you start to know what you don't know is, is the perfect opportunity to make a change. It's perfect place for a coach to come in because if you know what you don't know and they call it conscious conscious incompetence right you're consciously incompetent Um, you need someone to help you get to conscious competence and that's where a coach comes in I think you know to say okay I'm unconsciously competent today I've been running this business no everything's been fine now you're telling me I don't know something so I don't know how to fix it, but I don't, you know, I know that something's wrong. So I'm consciously incompetent. And with a coach and with somebody who can give you information and give you skills and give you a new approach, you, and you have to practice a lot, you can become consciously competent again until you hit the next hurdle. <laughs> because every time you grow to another level, you keep revisiting and revisiting and revisiting. So I'm all for conscious competence um, or conscious incompetence. But it's when it's unconscious incompetence that I have a hard time. So that's kind of, you know, where I, I, and I think with my client, I'm at the point of conscious incompetence. I think that's where we are. So I'm, I'm grateful to you, Michael, because you, you reminded me of some language that I used to use a lot, but didn't apply in this situation that I think gives, it gives me a continuum to put my you know, to put myself on with him and move him through. So thank you for that. All right. Wonderful. I'm, I'm glad that, that it was helpful. Very helpful. Very nice. So Brenda, let me just ask you before I let you go, is there anything that we didn't cover today or any parting thoughts or insights that you'd like to share? Or maybe if not, then my favorite question is, what was the most valuable part of this call or the highlight of this conversation for you? Well, I think, I think there's two parts. One, one, I love to educate, as I said, so I got to talk about the industry that I work in, but you know, you did something, Michael, and I think this is, I think this is your, your, your MO, you know, we align very, very much together on people being successful, not businesses. And, and, you know, the ability to have that conversation where you focus, you started to focus on me, not on what I knew. And, and that's a very powerful experience, which I would recommend every entrepreneur, you know, engage in because we can abuse ourselves. We stay up late, we eat wrong, we run, 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 run. And if you're not taking care of the engine that's running your machine, it may not be the machine that is the problem. You know, you, you got to focus on yourself. So I, I, I want to thank you for doing that today for me and, and for all the good work you're doing with everybody else that you're, you're working with um, and, and giving me this opportunity. And I will say that if, you know, if, if someone is interested in cannabis and they want to learn about it from an investment standpoint, I'm always open to taking their call. You know, they can go to my website, cbcapitalconcierge.com and just send me an email and we'll set up a call. And, and I'm happy to do that. You're, you're the process person. I'm the content person. Happy to do that. So awesome. Brenda, thank you so very much. And I, I just I, I have to add one little comment and plug, which is this is something I harp on in my book. Self-care is the first thing that goes out the window when things get tough. And invariably things will get tough and tricky all the time. And I I try to explain to everyone I work with that 
especially if you're in the startup phase, especially if you're in the early stages, your health and well-being is one of the most important assets for the well-being of your business. And so if you're not eating right, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're not taking care of yourself, your business is sure to suffer. And so I, I love that you brought that up. And again, the Cannabis Business Book is available on Amazon. Now the audio book is out. If you enjoy hearing my voice, you can go pick that up. And Brenda, I want to thank you so very much for spending the time with me, for educating investors, entrepreneurs, operators, for bringing all of your gifts and experience and talent and passion into the cannabis space, and for taking the time to chat with me. It's always such a pleasure. So thank you so very much. Michael, the pleasure was really mine. I mean, it's good to see you. I hope we get a chance to see one another in person again soon. Things go back to normal a little bit. Um, and thank you for the work you're doing to get the word out, to help people understand and, and, and even empower them for the things that they want to do. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.